Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Rob Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have yet another fantastic episode for you guys. In fact, they're just all bangers. Like we never, <laughs> we don't miss, as the kids say. Um, however, <laughs> it's us. We're the kids. Yeah, that's right. Um, we uh, we we really had a fantastic episode today with our guest Blake Masters. But before we get to that, always uh, encourage you guys to go to AmericanMoment.org. You can see all the stuff that we have cooking there. Um, uh, you know, you can find information about the Fellowship for American Statecraft. We're starting to gear up for year two of that. You can find uh, stuff on AmCanon, the books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and more that we're constantly posting. Uh, you can find the backlog of this podcast. We are uh, coming up on the close of our first season of moment of truth i think it's been uh as good as anyone could ever hope for i mean i can't imagine uh what it took to get all 40 of these really impressive people to come sit down with two 20-something schmucks but somehow they did uh and so we're, we're very lucky that that we've been able to create and all this capital c content for you guys so <laughs> i also like season two is going to be even like more of a banger yeah. like it is we're, we're starting to kind of sketch out what season two is going to look like right now and it is we're taking moment of truth to a whole new level yeah. so keep listening we're going to keep the capital c content coming just know it's only up from here that's right and so uh who do we have on today well we have on uh, someone really quite special. Uh, Blake Masters uh, was our guest on Moment of Truth today. And now I feel like this audience is going to be one of two groups of people, people who know immediately who Blake Masters is and uh, people who don't. And uh, it's funny, I was at an event with Blake last night and someone uh, texted me. They were like, hey, random question, but uh, are you guys going to have on Blake Masters? I think he's really cool. And I was like, he's standing right next to me. And yes, we're taping tomorrow morning, um, which by the way was at... 7.45 a.m. that we started taping, which is 4.45 a.m. for Blake's natural circadian rhythms. Yeah, I was going to say you're like, your voice is like a little muted. You sound like a little tired. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I just got off of three weeks of fundraising travel and uh, conferences that we were doing, so I'm an inch away from death. But about Blake Masters again. Uh, Blake Masters grew up in Tucson, Arizona, where he met his uh, lovely bride and has had three children with in middle school in I middle forgot school. I forgot to ask him about that I was actually really curious it's great yeah. um, and uh, he went to Stanford for undergrad and law school where he met the great Peter Thiel and uh, wrote the best notes of any class that anyone's ever written and so they co-wrote a book together called zero to one um, which uh, we have on set right here today uh, and that a is a signed copy yes it is by both authors I know it's great, it's great. Um, and so uh, highly recommend that you check out that book it's one of the most interesting things that I've ever read I actually remember reading it or listening to it and uh, I was gonna say I can't believe you've read no it no 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 <laughs> I, I, I listened to it on my drive up to DC um, last November when we still didn't know if American Mama would ever actually exist. It was still very much up in the air. I had no business moving. I had no money. <laughs> um, and we also had no yeah, money. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like, and, and, and I just like, I, I listened to it and I was like, man, like, there's just such an alignment here on, on everything. And so it's a fantastic book. Um, it has implications for politics and implications for culture. It has implications for a lot of things. So anyway, uh, Blake uh, was the co-author on that book uh, and has been doing fantastic work at the Teal Foundation and Teal Capital ever since. And now, of course, he is a candidate for U.S. Senate, one of the most exciting ones, I think, in the country. As always, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so this episode should not be seen as an endorsement of Blake or anyone else's candidacy. Uh, we cannot participate in elections, but I think it was an informative and educational episode. We talked deeply about a lot of important issues, including the tech issue, which you know, I'm very frustrated that there's a lot of boomer bait that goes on in D.C. You know, that that darndest Section 235 to hear about Section 230 one more time. Um, you know, yeah, no I, more Section 230 yeah. Halloween costumes. Yeah. I'm issuing a I, fatwa I, 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 I against. Last year. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I never want to see it again. I know. We're done. I know. Anyway. <laughs> Can't wait for the angry text. This, this very a la carte Blake Masters introduction, notwithstanding, um, we had a fantastic time with Blake. I mean, he's just one of the brightest people. People that um, is out there he's an easygoing guy he is the classic guy you want to get a beer with everyone we have introduced him to thinks he's the coolest thing since sliced bread and we tend to agree so highly recommend you you guys listen all the way to the end and thank you as always for being listeners to moment of truth we're going out of blake 
thanks for coming on the podcast, Blake. Thanks for having me. Long time coming. Um, We always like to start with how people got to the place where they are today. I feel like people know your story a little bit, but uh, why don't you tell us uh, why on earth you're in Washington, D.C.? What's the long journey that got you involved into this godforsaken industry called politics? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, the short version of it, uh, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, met my wife in middle school there. And uh, went to Stanford, Stanford Law School, and law school is where I met Peter Thiel. He came and taught a class. And uh, I think that class sort of jostled me awake because it was the first time um, I had had impressive professors, but it was the first time where like someone accomplished from the business world was coming in and not just saying a bunch of mm-hmm. like he was just, I mean, you know, Peter, right? sort of next level um, genius guy. And he was just slicing up the world in all sorts of different ways, very conservative, um, very libertarian, but it was like nothing I'd ever heard. So it's very interesting. And um, I became friends with him. I interned for him. He came and taught another class. Uh, the next year, we wound up taking that class and turning it into a book, uh, Zero to One. I think I saw a copy of it somewhere. It's behind me. Yeah. Um, so we wrote this book. Now I'm out of law school. I'm a young man. I, I started uh, working for him, making uh, investments in tech startups. But of course, he's also very political. And so in 2016, he decided to back then-candidate Trump for president. So we got involved with that campaign. Uh, when Trump won, I joined the transition team and you know got that whole education politics there and uh and then i moved back to arizona in late 2017 early 2018 and uh you know arizona had always been reliably red for my whole childhood and then all of a sudden you move back in 2018 and you see 2018 and then 2020 we lost two senate seats just like that and as soon as we lost that second senate seat uh mark kelly was announced the winner in 2020 i said no way like this does not, if you know anything about Arizona, it does not accurately reflect where Arizona is. It's not a, it's not a blue state. It's just not. And I knew Mark Kelly was going to be a disaster. And so I said, I can do this. You know, um, the, the transition was the first time in my life that I met like many congressmen and senators. And it's like they're very impressive people, but they were also struggling at the time to figure out like what, why did Trump just win? What's going on here? And I, and as I was getting older, you know, you realize. The, uh, the adults, they don't actually have everything figured out. And there's no one in charge here. There's no one with their hand on the tiller. I'm yeah. glad to hear somebody else say that because right? I thought it was just me. No, no, I think a lot of us have this feeling, right? Late 20s, early 30s, you just you realize, like, actually, no, the, the, the boomers, God bless them, love them. And they kind of left us with a whole bunch of problems. And I think we need a new generation of leadership to get in and clean some of this stuff up. So, so I want to dig into a little bit of, you know, your political world, how that's changed over time. Um, but you were a little bit sort of tendentially involved or at least interested in politics as early as college. Um, what what were sort of the things that interested you at that point? Um, you know, you did, I think you did some campus stuff. Walk us through all of that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up super conservative, libertarian. You know, um, I can remember in middle school, my dad, you know, had all the Ayn Rand and uh, Milton Friedman on his bookshelf. Um, and so I was the kid in high school, you know, debating free market capitalism, good, uh, you know, versus my communist, (laughs) you know, high school friends. Um, And so I've always been political. I was, you know, at Stanford in 2004 to 2008. And uh, so I became jaded with the Republican establishment. You know, the Iraq war uh, didn't work. I think that was clear to me already by 05, 06. Um, George W. Bush was supposed to be this great conservative. And so, okay, why are we spending trillions of dollars? Why are we federalizing? education policy with no child left behind like it didn't seem to (laughs) be going well and so i was a ron paul guy in 2008 you know i thought that message was needed and yeah i had a preference certainly for john mccain over barack obama but um but it seemed to be two sides of the establishment yeah and it wasn't working and so yeah i became very libertarian in college um i become more conservative again I think as I've gotten older and you have kids and libertarianism, God bless them. Like, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic. Uh, but I just, I've seen this progressive left, you know, they're, they're ascendant. They, they've taken over almost every institution in our country. And if you're just libertarian about it, if you're just going to throw your hands up and, Hey, we can't possibly use state power to do anything. Well, then the left will take over and they'll crush you. Well, I think there <clears throat> is some difference here too, between, like libertarianism, the ideology, like big L, like DC libertarianism, right? The, oh, we can't, 
we can't buy a canned book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like we we can't stop businesses from from you know having vaccine mandates to like enter their stores or whatever. And the kind of folk libertarianism that exists, particularly out west, it's kind of actually reminiscent, I think, of the populism from the early 1900s. But um, uh, I think that a lot of people, and again, I I don't think I've ever been to arizona but i but out you gotta west, come out yeah i know I, I i gotta but even out west in places like you know montana idaho north dakota um i think again i'm from the north so i just kind of go laterally um i think a lot of these people are libertarian in that sense um you know that they don't want anyone intruding on their day-to-day life and right. the way and, and 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 what they do businesses or governments um so give us a read kind of on you know the the people that you're running to represent in in arizona um how do they kind of view those issues i mean is there is their libertarianism more like a lot of these dc folks where it's like yeah we should we should like bathrooms sex like, trafficking and open borders yeah <laughs> that's yeah not well, what people are into in arizona no it's yeah. this folk libertarianism right yeah. said arizona's the very gold water state and it's this idea that uh very commonsensical no you ought to be able to live your life free of arbitrary you know uh restraint so we're very skeptical of big government i think um people i'm meeting on the campaign trail though they they also understand what goldwater understood which is that corporate concentration of power can be just as violation, you know, violative of people's liberties as government. And so when I campaign against big tech, um, you know, people are there for it. There's like a small amount of big L libertarian, like, Blake, how could you possibly regulate Google? Like, it's a private business, haven't you heard? Yeah. It's like, well, one, it's not really a private. Facebook's not a private business anymore when they're taking cues from the White House uh, on what to censor and what not to. And they're also like subsidized by the federal subsidized government by the in federal, a lot of ways. Every yeah. which way. And, but, but, you know, even conceding for a moment that maybe Facebook and Google are private businesses, it's like, okay, but if a private business becomes a trillion dollar multinational corporation that controls the flow of information in a free society, maybe you can still be pretty pro market, but also regulate that business to make sure that it's not just perpetrating all these harms and you can treat it differently than a hair salon. And people mm. understand that. People really understand that now, especially as uh, corporate America, the Fortune 500, appears to be like moving in lockstep with the sort of left-wing progressive agenda. You know, all these companies, they changed the logo to BLM. They changed the logo to the, the rainbow flag during Pride Month or whatever. And Except people like Bethesda, Saudi Arabia. You know? Yeah, <laughs> right, I, was, right, right. I was literally about yeah. to say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, it's yeah, to your point, it's cynical. It's not even that ideological. But um, but but giant corporate power can absolutely be enlisted in service of this left wing progressive agenda, as progressive activists have found. And people in Arizona don't like that. It's like we're very pro market, pro business. Um, but again, I want a nation of seven million, 70 million capitalists, not just like six or seven. Mm. Um, and so. So it's it's libertarian, small L, you know, rugged individualism. Like we want strong people, strong families, strong communities. Uh, very skeptical of federal government overreach, but increasingly skeptical of big business. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting shift that we're seeing on the right. I think that there's a an interesting difference between a lot of the people that have gotten involved from the tech venture capital space over the last five to ten years, and yourself. I mean, obviously, you know, Peter Thiel has been advocating for a more nuanced approach to this stuff for quite a long time. But but walk me through sort of the cultural differences that you see between a lot of the people um, that were maybe your your coworkers or, or, or other people that were starting to look towards politics from the tech space and yourself. I mean, you seem vastly more conservative than most of them. Why aren't you ahead in the clouds, libertarian, Blake? <laughs> I just don't think it works. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, sometimes when you're in Silicon Valley, you're creating new stuff. Uh, you're, you're maybe if you're a software engineer, you're typing code. You watch the code compile. You have this illusion that you can just design everything from top down. You can just, you know, be the be the dictator of your of your code of your product. Um, it's not the way the world works, right? And this is something we can learn from sort of libertarian tradition or at Hayek. Like you can't you can't actually just like plan society and people are complicated and institutions are complicated. Um, and so bottom up growth is something, uh, and tradition and, um, you know, slow change, slow march towards actual progress instead of sort of radical revolution. That's, that's how I approach politics. I think we can actually do a lot, a lot more than people think. Um, but I don't think you can just 
design society. You know, I, I went to law school and all these, um, you're sitting in these classes and they're so silly because it's like, let's design a new constitution for Bhutan. Let's design a new constitution for Afghanistan. Yeah. What principles That was a Stanford paper, I think, was the original, like, this is how you would govern Afghanistan. It's, yeah, and okay. <laughs> how did that work out, right? Yeah. Um, it's, but I think this is how the left approaches a lot of things. Um, and the biggest difference between the conservative mind and the, the progressive mind, as far as I can tell, is how do you um, tolerate imperfection? And so you like, I think the you know founders weren't perfect. I don't think America is a perfect country, but it's the best country that's ever existed, right? Yeah. Like we're you know we have uh, slavery in our past, but today I think America is like literally the least racist country that's ever existed. Um, is it perfect? No, but I think a conservative looks at that. They look at our history and they look at our present and they say, okay, well let's make it better, right? Like the founders knew this an ever more perfect union, um, but the left looks at that. And they want to say, because it wasn't perfect at the founding, because it's not perfect now, you throw everything out. And it's this radical sort of Bolshevist impulse, right? You throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And of course, then you'll end up with something ghastly and it always leads to death pits like yeah. it always does. <laughs> but they don't understand that. And so it's this maybe some of them are good people, but it's this um, revolutionary zeal. And you can see it in AOC. Like, I don't think she really understands what she's talking about most of the time. Um, but there's just this intolerance uh, and this radicalism that I think leads us to a very dark place. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who lived in Central America for several years, I I, I can attest that they are significantly more racist uh, than anyone that <laughs> anybody who's ever traveled knows. Yeah. Like other countries have, you know, we've got a lot of different people in America, different racial groups uh, getting along. I think you have a political class that's obsessed with dividing people yeah. on the basis of race, some on the right, but mo mostly sort of on the left. I mean, I really do think they are obsessed with race on the left because they need us to be obsessed with race because they want to divide us on race. Like, God forbid you have this multiracial society where everybody cares about having a strong middle class. Everybody cares about being able to raise a family. Like that is not what elites on the left want. Yeah, I think and and kind of going back to your you know previous response, I want to hit on an interesting point here that you've made. Uh, kind of the difference between a lot of these people in the elite classes, you know, people that are trying to redesign the constitution of Afghanistan. Um, you know, people in the tech world who you know, as Sarah was saying, are, are you know, big L libertarians. They're very focused on people as kind of economic units and getting to rebuild society based on their own visions. Um, what is kind of as as you see it, someone who who you know straddles both worlds. You're you're a tech guy. You're running to represent you know the average person living in Arizona. Um, what are kind of the differences between people living in you know on the coast in their bubbles um, and and the average American? And how do you reconcile those for for people who are going to have to live in the same country? Yeah, I mean you said it. People live in a bubble. Yeah. Um, people live in a bubble if they're in D.C. If they're in New York they're in LA or San Francisco, even if they're conservative. Um, I think the conservatives living in those coastal bubbles at least know that they're in a bubble. And so self-awareness is maybe the first step towards not just being completely um, blind to this reality that there's like a lot of normal people out there and um, the system is not working for them. It's really not like friends of mine in Arizona, I'm a millennial, I'm 35. So I think that places me like kind of like mid millennial, maybe slightly mm -hmm. elder millennial. And most of my friends in Arizona are not, uh, they're not on track to buy a house. Like they know they're generate, like they feel like they're getting left behind, even though they're, they have good jobs, they're working really hard. Um, maybe they're married, but they probably don't have kids at this point yet. And so you just see like family formation is being delayed. Um, things are getting more expensive every year. And people in DC want to tell them that this is the, you know, I guess GDP is the highest it's ever been. And so by definition, like everything's great. We're all really successful. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not how people feel. Um, and even just, you know, leaving aside the immediate material realities, people feel like something's gone deeply wrong in this country, hmm. um, socially and just the, the fabrics, it just seems to be unraveling. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so I think everybody, everybody outside of the, the, the narrow cones of success on the coasts, knows that something's gone deeply, deeply wrong. And policymakers who want to tell them, like, ignore your intuition, ignore your your day-to-day -day life, everything's great, we're in charge, that's just ringing hollow. Yeah. 
I think that the difference between generations or the cult of youth can be overstated sometimes, but I think age cannot be understated as the element dividing people here. I remember Nick, uh, soon after we launched, did a panel television show uh, where- The only media appearance I've ever done on behalf yeah, of American yeah, Moment, there was, the there was a reason for that. <laughs> well, oh my gosh, this is good. Did you blow yeah, it? Yeah, no, it was actually great. Um, I'll send you the clip later. Yeah, and, and there was this, older gentleman on the on the panel who and shall not be named who shall not be named and then they were talking about college and the the financial challenges that young people have in actually raising families and living a decent life and you could tell that what was just fundamentally epistemically different between these two people is that Nick grew up in a world where you spend $40,000 a semester for a college education taught by shrieking communists who hate your country and hate you. Whereas this like boomer had gone to school in an era where it was like, a nickel and yep. you know in it, like 1960 yeah like, this guy was <laughs> and, 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 and tuition's like 1100 bucks yeah. and yeah. he could just have a side job and pay for yeah. it yeah well even St stanford was free when it started um like it, it that is the reality of what college education was like for a while and especially if you had done even a little bit of time in world war ii you could basically get it all paid for it's just a, a fundamentally different society what do you think are the the core elements of the difference of perspective you have being the age you are trying to raise a family and children in the 21st century versus the gerontocracy that runs this town. Well, I mean, I think you you articulated it. The gerontocracy that runs this town, they basically had things get better and better for them every every year of their life, more or less on autopilot. Mm -hmm. You know, most are boomers um, or just sort of late silent generation and you know, after after World War Two, you had the post-war boom. And, you know, if you yeah, if you went to Harvard in the 60s and then Harvard Law School in the early 70s, it's like you're you became a successful partner at a law firm and, you know, you argued in front of the Supreme Court. And that's a narrow, small club of elite lawyers. And it's still the same people. And everything just got better and better. And same if you became uh, I mean, look at Joe Biden. Right? Joe Biden was younger than me when he was elected to the U.S. Senate. Yeah. in the early 70s and then he stayed there forever i mean he never did anything else with his life yeah. which is a huge argument for term limits of course <laughs> but um but things just you know i don't i don't think uh i don't think he did a particularly good job or had a particularly noteworthy career but from his perspective everything's all good because he was one of the few successful boomer elites i actually um what makes me optimistic is the elderly or more elderly activists that I talked to in Arizona, they are more excited than anyone about generational change. They're more excited mm. about my candidacy, you know, on for, for my youth um, than even young people are because they share the perspective that young people have, which is something's gone badly wrong and it doesn't work. And they see Nancy Pelosi and they see Chuck Schumer uh, just clutching to power. And it's like these people will never let power go, even though in a healthy republic, what you would do as an aging statesman is you'd find and cultivate talented young people, right? Worthy successors. And we don't really do that. And they know that and they think, you know, because these people are out of power. Maybe they're in a retirement community in Sun City, Arizona. Um, but they just look at what this, I think, frankly, bipartisan elite has done in DC. And they're just like, yeah, our generation screwed it up. Yeah. Sorry, hope you can fix it. Yeah, yeah I really want to hone in on that. <clears throat> you know, you have some senators I'll use Chuck Grassley as an example. And listen, I love I love Chuck Grassley. His Twitter is great. You can very much tell he writes his own tweets. Probably does more push-ups than you. Yes. Yeah. Like that's fired. Unironically. It's he's he's kind of great, but he's he's eighty-eight now. Yeah. Right? And just and just announced that he was gonna run again. Um and I think a lot of the priorities, particularly of, you know, the Republican caucus being that they're a lot older, have been kind of these I mean, they're stuck in the Reagan era, right? It's it's the tax cuts, the free trade, um, you know, and there are a couple of people side, Senator Hawley, that sort of thing. But say, you know, this 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 next election cycle goes really well for for the let's even just call it the youth wing of the Republican Party. Right. So, I mean, you, um, J.D., the Senate has you and J.D. and 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 Hawley and Cotton and all these young guys. Right. What sort of priority shifts specifically do you do do you think there are from that older generation to the new one well um, i mean big tech comes to mind you know i um i also love a lot of our 
more elderly statesmen and um, <laughs> some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, right? Awesome. Oh, yeah. But then, but then you see the hearings. You see the tech hearings where they get Zuckerberg on the hot seat. And it's just, God bless them. They can't. They can't. Yeah. Will you ban the finstesser? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't get their hooks into this guy because, like, you don't know the basic vocabulary, you know? And so mm -hmm. I think it helps that uh, younger people, like, we're a little bit more native to this stuff, right? I happen to know a lot about Facebook. Uh, I know... Um, executives and rank and file engineers and the business models and I've tracked it over time and I feel like I have a good sense of the harms that these companies actually perpetrate um, and so I'm not saying it'll be easy but like you know Holly could use some backup and yeah. you get a few of us in and all of a sudden like you know big tech is a priority and I think we actually know what to do about it um, it may not be something that you can solve on year one but year two year three you start get, to get a snowball effect um, maybe the companies preemptively change some of their behavior because they knew that there's a new sheriff in town, mm -hmm. right? And so I think um, you just got to get some young people in, though. Yeah. Like the old, the, the older generation is just not going to figure it out. They're just not going to figure it out. And then if you're five or ten years behind these problems, or I went on Tucker Carlson and we talked about BlackRock buying up the homes, and you know, the, people want to point out like, oh, BlackRock only owns whatever point, whatever percent, one percent maybe of the U.S. housing stock, and so there's nothing to see here. And I'm like, yeah, but by the by the time that number is high enough to be alarming, it's going to be far too late, right? Because like, you've got to get ahead of some of these problems before they become problems. We should have been doing something about big tech back in 2014, 2015, when you could, I don't think you could have really predicted this in 2010, but like by 2014, Facebook and Google and w just what they were doing, like you could tell, you could tell this was on the way. I think by 2015, certainly after the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that uh, these companies had too much power and that they play politics with it. So of course Google wants to swing a presidential election come 2020. I'm not saying they did, but I'm not saying they did. It's like, who knows how they may have changed their algorithms and we have zero visibility into that. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. Mm. On big tech specifically, I think that there is a slightly <clears throat> dumber, boomer version of the criticism of big tech. And then there's, I think, the much more intelligent version that that folks like yourself are marshalling. What, what specifically is the issue with the business model and the power that that Facebook and Google and, and I don't even think you should categorize it as a set. I think each company has its own issues. But what what are the tangible specific things that you're looking at as as the pain points and, and the ones that cause all the consequences that we see in broader society? Well, what everybody talks about is censorship. Mm -hmm. And I agree that censorship is a huge problem. I agree that censorship uh, primarily affects us as conservatives, right? Like these companies ripped President Trump off the platforms Facebook and Twitter while he was still president, right? Meanwhile, Taliban commanders have Twitter <laughs> So this, I mean, this is, that's obviously crazy. That should not be allowed. And I think they should be punished, frankly, for what they did. Um, but censorship is a, it's a, it's a real issue. It also is just one issue. I worry a lot. Uh, I mean, I worry that Google can swing an election, you know, that there's a censorship component to that, but it stops becoming about free speech and starts becoming a lot more existential to our republic if Google can just choose the president, right? So there's that set of issues. But even just the fundamental business model of targeted advertising, I think that's the original sin of the internet, right? The internet was supposed to be this new decentralized place. You could have a blog, you could have a blog, everybody's um, sharing perspectives. It was really supposed to open us up and free us. Uh, and I think it was that actually, like I'm old enough to remember, maybe, maybe you guys are. But this sort of free and open internet before there, you know, there were lots of websites. How, how many, it wasn't just how high. many computers did you brick with LimeWire, Blake? Oh my gosh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, so you remember, you remember. Um, but we got just with the uh, the network effects of and the modern social media monopolies, um, it's really had this centralizing effect of late. And the reason is targeted advertising. You know, I mean, you got all these startups; they become really big oh shit, we need a business model, what do we do? Let's sell some ads. And obviously that's crude and that's been refined to perfection over the last uh, 15 years or so. But you develop, um, it's basically this cancerous business model. Like I think it's really bad. It's People have no idea how much data about themselves um, that they're surrendering to these companies. These companies have a model of you, Facebook and Google and Apple. They know everywhere you've been. They, know, they almost know everything you think, you know? And to just take all that data and it's way more than people realize and to turn it around and use it against you and serve ever more precisely targeted ads. Um, 
I think it's 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 predatory. It's really bad. And people are nervous about this. People know I in you know, on the campaign trail, I tell people like how many times have you just been talking about camping with your son? And then ten minutes later, you know, on some unrelated website you see an ad for camper vans or tents or something. Yeah. And it's really creepy. Like it's really creepy. And then we see like Facebook knows what it does to the minds of teenagers, especially teenage women. It makes them more depressed. It makes them more likely to commit suicide. And they know how many people do. And they'll cry crocodile tears about it. But they actually just keep the engine running because they make more and more money. And I think that's disgusting. And so it's like table stakes to ban Facebook from advertising to children. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to uh, make Blake hate me and out myself as a as a retired digital marketer. Mm. Uh, so so I actually got my start in the business world doing um, digital marketing for real estate, uh, uh, particularly on Facebook. So kind of undercutting the Zillow model of paying, you know, $150, $200 a lead. Um, and we were targeting people on Facebook for like we were getting like 80 to 80 cents to like a dollar lead. I mean, it was it was insane, but the metrics we were able to target by, you know, for when, um, and you can't do this anymore. Uh, Facebook got rid of this. That's why I'm, 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 I feel okay to talk about it. But, uh, when you were advertising a particular home, I mean, you could target people by, um, how much money they made, how much they had in liquid assets, uh, what their credit score was, you know, and, and, and by the way, not actually what their credit score was, what Facebook thought based on their habits, which is probably pretty accurate. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 the level of information that Facebook has on people is terrifying. I think another note, you know, on the kind of censorship and ability to swing elections portion. Um, and the reason I, I'm sure you know this, but I want our listeners to go check this out. If you go to YouTube right now and you try to find just some based content, you're just like, yeah, Tucker Carlson, best moments, whatever. You know, you want to you want to watch these clips The and I've noticed this, especially in the last like two to three years, they really are filtering those results. Like if, if you search like Tucker Carlson clips right now, the whole first page is going to be like liberal commentary. Like I haven't even tried it with this specific search instance i know it to be true like if you if you search tucker carlson clips the the first 10 results are going to be liberal commentators you know rachel maddow whoever freaking out about tucker's january 6th documentary or like whatever i mean and 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 it really has been over the last couple of years that this has changed because they left youtube alone for a while YouTube for a while was this neutral space and the left would, you know, shriek about how that made it a right wing space because to the left, anything neutral actually is right. Radicalized me at work. And yeah, (laughs) you could, you know, every bit, you know, it was like five, six degrees from Kevin Bacon, five degrees from some video and like audit the Fed, right? Yeah. Yeah, Turns out like that's probably interesting and good for young people to be seeing. And then they caught on to this. And in the last, yeah, I'd say two years, Mm. um, from my perspective, YouTube's really been putting the putting the hammer down yeah it was the it was the ben shapiro to tucker carlson uh yep or or further progression that Um, got me yeah yeah. (laughs) well and and so i think i think the arguments that you're making about what this digital technology does to our ability to flourish as human beings is is the name of the game and and i almost feel like mark zuckerberg and eric schmidt and all these guys would love nothing more than for the only thing conservatives care about to be censorship because that's right. small potatoes. Yeah, that's that's mm. not that's not everything. I tell yeah. this uh, I tell this anecdote to to people on the campaign trail. I say like, how many times have you personally gone into a family restaurant and you look around and you look at the other tables and you see a family who ought to be having a dinner table conversation, but they're not because every kid is just glued to a phone. And I think that actually hits people in a different way than just a conservative complaining about censorship. But again, the censorship is very real, but like so is the mass addiction of all of our children, right? And then I remind people that does not happen by accident. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. And the executives at Apple who made that device and all the, the software CEOs and software developers, they don't let their own children have those devices. Like I don't let my kids have, like my kids don't have devices. You know, <laughs> I would like very to limited know that- screen time. I would like to note that Blake Masters does have two phones on the table <laughs> at present. Two phones for me, zero for the children. <laughs> Hopefully my children never have a cell phone. Obviously, yeah. I feel like that's impossible in the modern world. But like, yeah. no kids should be playing with like wooden toys and, uh, and, and going outside and getting muddy and not just like addicted from this early age to the endless feed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true, you know, for us being 
younger guys. Sorry, I don't mean to make you feel bad. Uh, who kind of came up really in this in this digital age? Um, you know, I didn't have a phone till I was sixteen. But the way that my parents kind of raised me, I don't want to. Oh God, my mom listens to this show. She's gonna be upset to say this, but um, uh, they were not. And I and I and I think maybe it was part of just it being a new technology. There were not a lot of guardrails there. Uh, I mean, there were in terms of content, but like time, um, like, sure. Yeah. You can just be on Facebook and my dad is addicted to Facebook. So there were like no getting into Facebook political arguments, but there were like no, uh, uh, kind of guardrails for that. And I kind of noticed really over the last like one to two years, really how much time it was really when Apple introduced that, um, yep. like the time feature, I was like, I'm wasting like thousands of hours of my life you know so i actually don't uh except for when i'm at conferences like natcon 2 uh don't have like uh social media apps on my phone because it like melts my brain um and i've real i've realized actually that <laughs> i'm just like nerding out here uh that 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 like the difference in my attention span yeah when i'm not using my phone to like browse social media or whatever like if I, if i've been on twitter I can't read a book because I've been on Twitter for NatCon 2 yep. all weekend. Like, I, I, I'm just not – my brain cannot handle that level of extended content. Um, I feel like I – yeah, I just love everything you're saying. Yeah. So I mean, it's, <laughs> it's adding it's, it's hard. And it's – you know, it's um, – you know, we're not going to ban smartphones or something. Uh, and so this technology in some sense is here with us to stay, although I do think we should look into targeted advertising, especially for children. Mm. Like, there's a lot we can do. But fundamentally, this stuff is – pretty new mm -hmm. and we've seen it's like there were you know human psychology humans didn't we weren't built to be suddenly and instantly connected to everyone else on the planet mm -hmm. and that maybe sounds like a really good thing in theory and i think in practice like it's really weird when something happens in the u.s and for political reasons like all of a sudden there's some protest in london and like everybody's just connected to this um outrage machine right and that's become mm -hmm. what the media is it's mm -hmm. this hyper yeah hyper-connected, instant uh, outrage, instant mm -hmm. sort of mob mentality. And I think disconnecting from that to the extent possible is um, maybe not just healthy, but urgent. Well, it's also the engine of globalization, right? Is that, yeah, you know, that's right. Black Lives Matter protests in Sweden. <laughs> so, hold on. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, yeah, like George, like George Floyd riots in London. It yeah. was like very, yeah. very bizarre. Um, I think that this goes to, again, a whole kind of intellectual oeuvre that you come from, which is that, you know, we were we were promised uh, hundred. Uh, you know, we were promised flying cars, and we got one hundred forty characters. Yep. And so, despite on how Tuesdays and Thursdays I am tempted to smash every machine around me, it's clear that technology is here to stay. So, what is the best of what technology could do to further human flourishing as opposed to damage it? Right. Well, I'm super pro technology, and people want to say like anti big tech means anti technology, and no, it does not. Like we need more technology. Um, I actually think that the the progress from smartphones and social media monopolies can disguise the lack of progress that we've had everywhere else. Um, we're not moving faster. Planes are going slower. There's a regulatory component to this, but also, um, no, we're just not mostly, I think there's some startups that are kind of doing this with boom and whatnot, but mostly no one is going in, into fields like, you know, aerospace engineering to design mm -hmm. faster planes, you know, um, our traffic patterns are, are really horrible traffic's just getting worse and worse in modern cities um there's been no innovation on on that front um we're decommissioning power plants uh nuclear and you know power we should be leaning into that like we should be making technology means doing more with less right and i think the left just wants to do more with more and that you know you get trash 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bills that are basically just all sorts of crazy projects um, that are never going to get built and, and the right just doesn't want to do anything, do less with less. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you do have crumbling infrastructure and things aren't working. <clears throat> and so you need more technology. Uh, we could be, you know, attacking cancer, attacking Alzheimer's in, in all sorts of new ways. And there's been like very little progress here on these things in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, only technology can get us there by definition. So I want to be investing in technology. We need, every time I invest in a tech startup, you know, we want that startup to become very successful. We want the technology to work. The world gets new technology. We get to make money. Like, everything's good. It's just when you become 
a trillion dollar corporation and you basically, you know, have this huge ability to censor what hundreds of millions of people are going to read before an election. No, we're going to take a close look at that <laughs> yeah. and you can afford to intervene like, and you have to, mm -hmm. but that's not being anti-tech. That's just saying like, obviously technology, like any tool, right? It's like a gun can be used for good. I think most of the time it is, and it can be used for bad. Yeah. And it's about punishing the bad and making sure that doesn't happen while preserving the space for the good to exist. Well, and the, the mission drift is, I think, very important to watch, too, because we live in this culture where the couple of nerdy guys that created the technology that creates a trillion dollar company will be parasitized by, you know, women's studies majors yep. from Vassar College who then will be elevated to C-suite positions where their job is to harass all the people doing all the interesting work at a company. I mean, you've seen the life cycle of probably hundreds of companies at this point. Um, and now all of a sudden, the conservative movement, the Republican Party are paying attention to it because, and thank God for Chris Rufo, there's this shiny word, critical race theory, right. but all was not well in 2014. This stuff goes deeper. What do you what do you make of of that sort of cultural disease that that infects and and does great damage to the most productive citizens in the entire country? Well, I think it's bad. Mm -hmm. I think you got to call it out. Hot like, take. I, yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, but I also I also think uh, a lot of people underrate like the um, cultural power of like a U.S. Senate seat, and you've mm -hmm. got to be shouting from the rooftops. You got to be articulating. I, some people say, like, Blake, you're talking so much about cultural issues and, like, politics isn't culture and you can't change it. And it's like, I actually think things, these things are very intertwined, right? And, like, you would have no hope of changing the culture if sort of political leaders, leaders in government never talked about, like, what was going wrong and dysfunctional about the culture. And so I think this left-wing infiltration of mostly all of our institutions, even the formerly neutral ones, like the military, right? You've got General Milley up there testifying about white rage, critical race theory, and, oh, I read Marx and Lenin. Meanwhile, you know, I think one month later, right, they just have that embarrassing debacle in Afghanistan. Um, like these people have forgotten how to do their jobs and they just become social justice warriors. And that's a huge problem. I see it in tech, mostly in software companies, because you get the network monopoly. Um, you know, there's no one that's going to come and dislodge Twitter. There's no competition. And so Twitter can afford in some sense to be a very badly run company. And so you can let the women's studies majors from Vassar College come in and run the show. You can't do that in something like uh, Elon Musk's Tesla or SpaceX. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think Elon um, is very good at keeping that stuff out. And there's something structural about that because like you actually can't have these people run stuff when stuff needs to work. And so they... Um, they will colonize and be parasites in any institution that's just going to exist, which is why they take over the government. Because the government doesn't have a PL, right? The Department mm -hmm. of Education is going to exist next year. And it's a gravy train. And the whole civil service, I think, has been taken over by this woke left. And that's going to be like priority number one, I think, for the next Republican president in 24. It's just cleaning house. Got to clean house at like DOJ, FBI, right? This stuff has been, it's a cancer. So I think one of the places where uh, this kind of politics and culture intersect and it's something you, you've kind of touched on, uh, you know, briefly throughout our conversation is, um, you know, in your campaign about being able to raise a family on a single income. Um, you have a really great video about this. Well, actually, I think there have been two, uh, but really fantastic stuff. I just want you to give your overview as to um why that should be the case um, and and how we do it. Yeah, it's shocking how it kind of makes people's brains explode when I say this, right? Mm -hmm. You should be able to afford to raise a family on one single income. And I think that's obvious. I think most people actually intuit that that's an obviously good goal because mm -hmm. right? it just means you should be prosperous enough to choose. Do you want one breadwinner in the family? Uh, do you want two? Like that should be a choice, right? You shouldn't have to just struggle to make ends meet. It would be nice if, if families could form without struggling, right? So I find it obvious, but it's very instructive that the left, they want to attack me when I say that. Mm -hmm. They want to say that's sexist, um, which of course is ridiculous. And like I, I went on Dave Rubin and I said like, I don't, I don't care who, like maybe the wife wants to work and the husband wants to stay at home or maybe it's a two husband household, like whatever. I just want people to be prosperous enough where they can actually get married, buy a house, have children in their late 20s. And if we can't do that in America anymore, I think we've lost the plot. I really think we have. And so there's there's something, I think, um, 
just intuitively conservative about this this goal and i think that's why the left doesn't like it because there's two responses there's yours which is like this is a good idea and how do we do it mm-hmm. um and we'll talk about like how we get there in a second but then there's there's the um the other response which is like oh yeah blake well, how are we possibly going to do that? You know, and like just incredulous. And yeah. and they don't really want to know how we're going to do that. They just know that they don't like it, but they know they can't criticize the goal. Um, and so I, I find that just fascinating. But Or they call it sexist. Or they call it sexist, <laughs> that's right. The, yeah, I think the active left progressive wing calls it sexist and then just sort of like normal Democrats are like, can't possibly happen. Um, but it can happen and it's just two buckets, right? You got to have people make more money and things have to cost less. And so on the on the sort of personal income side, it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have outsourced all the jobs to Southeast Asia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from Silicon Valley and it was named Silicon Valley because that's where we invented computer chips. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we don't make computer chips there anymore because we took all that productive industrial capacity and we shipped it off to Southeast Asia to save a buck. And there's some sort of like economic logic in that at the time. You can understand why it was done, but it was a bad decision. It was a policy decision. And uh, we got to bring that stuff back. I mean, there's a national security component too to being able to make our own silicon. But it's, um, we got to be able to make things in America again, right? So, so just penalizing offshoring, um, tax holidays to incentivize onshoring and the reindustrialization. Um, again, I come at this from a, a pretty market perspective. I think markets are great tools for human flourishing, but that's what they are. Um, and you can tilt more in the industrial policy direction. We got to be training people to do uh, high skill, high wage jobs. Um, you stop the flow of illegal immigration. I think we also need to reform our visa systems because we take over a million legal immigrants every year. That's probably way too high uh, in a country where people where native born Americans are struggling. And so we just got to make sure that like Americans are uh, equipped and trained for good jobs here. So that's step one. Step two is like, why does healthcare and education and housing cost more and more every year? I think people have become so used to this that we assume it's like an iron law of the universe like it's newton's fourth law or something mm-hmm. and it's not and if you look at at at, uh, at these industries how housing education healthcare so much of them um is, is dominated by cartel-like sort of corporate con- conglomerate organization a lot of it's like regulatory capture um you could talk for hours and weeks even on like why healthcare is so expensive but i think like obamacare just made it worse they said that it was going to make it better. Actually, this stuff just gets more and more expensive every year. Meanwhile, quality stays flat or even goes down, certainly in education, right? We were talking about the $1,100 Harvard tuition in 1965 or whatever. And um, I think the costs are up like even in infl- inflation adjusted terms, probably like 5 or 10x. And the quality of the education just gets worse and worse every year. Mm-hmm. And so that's crazy. It's absolutely just crazy. Housing, we have more technology than we had. 50 or 100 years ago, but the houses we build are usually like inferior quality. They're just really expensive. And so these are hard problems to solve, but like that's what we're looking at. People got to make more money and the cost of everyday living has to go down. And if we attack those in the right way, I know we can do it because you used to be able to raise a family on one income in the 50s and 60s and like you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's just a an iron law. I think we can change it. The kinds of content that you're putting out and what you're talking about is Phil's married guys. Again, flexing the married privilege here. Uh, uh, you know, it it gives me hope. So I suppose my question is, uh, you know, are you kind of hopeful for for the future of America? And and if so, why? I I am, but I I also call it like my. I have many sort of consultants in Arizona that say like. Hey, ease up on the negativity. Like, you know, you're you're actually running a pretty negative. Ca- and I, I don't think I am running a negative campaign, but I do. I spend a lot of time talking about a lot of the problems that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I level with people and I say, I think 2022 and 2024 are existential for America. I think we lose the country if the Democrats win in 22 and 2024. And that's kind of a pessimistic message because, you know, I'm not here just saying like, oh, this is easy or America's best days are around the corner. I mean, I hope our best days are in the future, but we'll only get there if we realize like we're in a tough spot right now and mm-hmm. it's unclear that we're going to survive. That's that. So so I start from that baseline, but it's also like, no, I am running for office. Um, I know I can win in Arizona. I know I can beat Mark Kelly. Uh, I know I can actually 
do something in the U.S. Senate. I know we can get a cadre of people in there to turn this thing around. So I am sort of by definition super hopeful. Um, and I, I think it's this paradox. It's like you're hearing a positive message, but I'm also telling you we're about to lose the country, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what real optimism means. It doesn't mean just like bury your head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend everything's okay. It's taking uh, with, with clear eyes, taking stock of like where we're at. But I think if we're honest about where we're at and we're right about like the diagnosis, um, then with the right messenger and the right leaders and the right policies, we can actually turn this thing around because this is the greatest country that's ever existed. Like I truly believe that. Um, but you know that it's sort of the cliche Reagan line, freedom is only one generation away from extinction. And it's something I always would have agreed with, although it hits harder now that I have kids and it hits harder now that you see what's happening in the schools, um, teaching kids to hate their country and all this stuff. And it's just clear to me that like, no, America won't always exist by default because it's exceptional. Like you have to do the work every generation to renew it, to renew our institutions, maybe build new ones to keep this thing going. Um, but I think things are so bad and I think everybody feels that. And so I think we are at this moment, it's this real crossroads where if we do the right work, our best days really are ahead of us. But like, damn it, it's not gonna be easy mm. and it's not gonna happen by accident or default. So we gotta work really hard to make it happen. As a final question, Blake, one of the biggest issues I have in D.C. is that, uh, you know, politicians, especially on the right, will, uh, you know, spend five, 10, 15 years pretending like something isn't a problem and then propose the most incremental solution. It's like yeah. it's like on the tech issue, like only now can we talk about Section 230 on the right. right. <laughs> Whereas like and we can barely do that. Yeah, yeah. We can barely do so, that. Yeah. And uh, even if you did the right things, 230 reform would fix like 5% of the problem. Right. You know? So what is the thing that no one's paying attention to right now? Um, that maybe even be outside the four corners of the campaign you're running. What are the things you see coming down the pike in the next, on the time horizon of 10, 20, 30, 40 years that you think that if the right's being responsible and good defenders of this country, they would start really thinking about right now? Three things come to mind. One is education. I do think the right is paying attention to this now. And we'll be sure if there's going to be a red wave in 22, it's going to be at the school board level, right? Or just look at this Yunkin victory recently. And I think education obviously had a whole lot to do with that. So people are now hip to the fact that if you don't control what kids are learning, if you just outsource all that to the radical left, like it's going to be a disaster for the future of the country. So there's that. There's a, a fertility issue, demographic time bomb. Like I don't think, you know, partly because Americans are uh, finding it too too hard to raise a family mm. economically. People are not coupling up. Um, people are getting married later and fewer, and people are having too few children. And it's like, we're not replacing ourselves. That's bad. That's a demographic time bomb um, That that's, again, by the time it's obvious, way too late. So I think we should be talking about that. Uh, and the third thing that comes to mind is China. And again, I think Thanks to President Trump, he reset the conversation on China. So now at least people are talking about it. But I think it's really scary. I mean, they're testing hypersonic, you know, warhead uh, delivery systems. Meanwhile, you know, Kamala Harris is rolling out a national gender strategy, which I'm sure Millie is reading very carefully. And um, these are the kind of things that we needed to be focused on 10 years ago. And we weren't. Hopefully it's not too late. I don't think it's too late, but it's close. And so if we focus on things like this and we do the right things, I think we can lead our way out of this mess. But it's uh, it's going to be hard. And I find that encouraging. Yeah. I find it encouraging because if something's going to be easy, you're just going to sit back and not do it. Yeah. And if something's impossible, you're just going to sit back and not do it. Mm -hmm. Just try to climb onto a lifeboat mm -hmm. or something. But I think this is hard and doable, and that's the sweet spot. And I think young people are excited about that. Well, and it, it puts a responsibility on our shoulders to actually do something. Yep. Um, Blake, where can people learn more about everything that you're up to and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Just uh, go to blakemasters.com. I'm on Twitter at bgmasters, at least until they cancel me. Yeah, but <laughs> you've been a lot more prolific over the last hasn't, few months. Hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Watching so. you become an inveterate poster has been very funny to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Too much posting. Yeah. But. All right. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Blake. Thanks, guys. One of the things that Blake talked about in the episode today was how when he first graduated college, there wasn't really 
anything interesting that you could be doing in politics. It was not clear that the right was interested in being useful to the country at all. It wasn't clear that politics was going to be the source of anything that led to national renewal or American prosperity. However, and Blake's talked about this on this podcast and in other interviews, the election of Donald Trump gave hope. You could actually get something done in politics. There was actually a chance to do fundamental change to the system and build a country worth living in. And so this is my call to you. If you're a listener to this podcast and you're just out there somewhere in the country, um, maybe you're a college student, maybe you're a college dropout, maybe you're already a young professional, the core of what American Moment exists to do at every level is to build the personnel that will be the engine of renewal on the right. Um, we're not fielding candidates, although, hey, if we do a phone call and that's ultimately what it, we decide that it would be the best thing for you to do, that may be it. But we are interested in finding some way for you to get involved. And we've been extremely grateful over the last eight months of existing publicly how many of you have reached out context-free and said, hey, I want to get into the fight. Coming up on the end of the year here and in the early of next year, there's going to be a lot of opportunities that are going to come on the table for people to get involved in a substantive way. Maybe that's moving to Washington, D.C. Maybe that's getting involved in the state that you're in. Regardless, if you go to AmericanMoment.org slash join and fill out the form there, we'll talk and we'll find something for you to do. I guarantee it. Get off your ass. Get something done. Someone like Blake could have spent the rest of his career in the business sector, made a boatload of money, had a McMansion out in Tucson because housing prices are cheap and lived a good life. And he is doing that. Instead, he chose to get in the fight. He has a, I believe, a seven, a five, and a one-year-old. He does not have to be spending all this time away from his kids and his wife, but he is because he knows, and this goes to a core theory that we have here in American Moment, that two things are not true. One is the black pill. Uh, all is not lost. Uh, we are not destined to a country where the right where ordinary Americans are basically going to be political serfs. We're headed that way, but it's not baked in. It's not predetermined yet. And the other is that boomerism is not true. The moral arc of the universe being long and betting towards justice is fine, but our victory is not guaranteed. We may have the numbers. The left is doing everything it can to change that. So we're not guaranteed to win out of sheer moral superiority or having the right ideas. Something in between is true. It'll be the individual choices of people institutions, organizations, and movements over the next 5 to 10, maybe 15 years. That will determine not if there's an America that's even better for our kids and grandkids, but whether there's an America at all in our generation. And I still believe the political change is possible. So AmericanMoment.org slash join. Come talk to us. We want to help. Um, and you'll get to talk to me. Um, you know, we we don't we are, it's funny. Okay. That's we, a huge promise. I know, I'm just thinking about all the hours you're going to spend over the next and couple I, and, weeks. And I want to do it. So here's the thing. It's funny. We, we've we been going to a bunch of conferences over the last couple of weeks. And uh, like some of you will come up to me and be like, oh my God, it's so great to meet you. Can I talk to you for a few minutes? And you'll be like, oh my God, like, thank you for spending all this time with me. I know you must have more important things to do. No, this is my job. My job is to get you involved and make sure that if you believe the ideas that we talk about on a regular basis on this podcast that you have as much institutional influence, expertise, and credibility as possible as soon as possible. Help us make that happen. AmericanMoment.org slash join. As always, make sure to rate and review the podcast. Five stars. Send in your review at podcast at AmericanMoment.org. We'll send in um, uh, and we'll answer the question on the podcast. Uh, and then we'll we'll also give out a couple t-shirts. We actually crossed 100 reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts recently. I think we're up to 102, maybe 103. So thank you guys for doing that. There's a whole lot more of you listening than there were a couple weeks ago. Um, we've had a couple of back-to-backs. Um, Michael Anton getting in trouble certainly helped. <laughs> um, go back and listen to that one if you haven't, by the way. He uh, he definitely did a spicy on the podcast. Um uh, but yeah, as always, we're, we're extremely grateful to you guys um, as uh, as we enter the holiday season, Thanksgiving and all that stuff. I uh, still am extremely grateful that I have basically the best job in Washington, D.C. and the best team in Washington, D.C. And that would not be possible without you guys. So thank you as always. And we'll see you next week on Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. 
Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. 